Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, I want to invite you, please, to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. That's where our study brings us today, Exodus chapter 32. And for those who are worshiping in the Family Life Center, I invite you into our study as well as well as those who may be watching from abroad, at home, or maybe somewhere that you have traveled today. I'm grateful that you would tune in and, be, and become a part of what we're doing here. And as always, if you are tuning in online, uh, we want you to be here too. We encourage you when you're in town to come by and be with us at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Amen? Amen. Today, Moses is on the mountain. He's been up there a little while. He's receiving instructions from God about how to build the tabernacle. We talked about that last week in great detail. But he's been on the mountain a while. They've seen the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. They've heard it clap, but they have not heard from him in a while. Is he dead? Is he lost? And in the midst of the silence, the people of Israel turn to their own impulsivity and fear and ask for a God of their own making. We pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron said to him, Come, Uh, Make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They rose early the next day, And offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Today, I'm mindful of the reality that the very first act of a covenant people is to break covenant. And so it goes with you and with me. You can plan on doing it right. You can even 
have the best intentions of getting this thing right and doing it well, and yet we are always, always, always just one step away, one bad decision away from truly blowing it. So what do you do when that happens? And more importantly, what do you do after that? Today, I want us to dig into this text that we just read, but to do so, I want us to navigate with these words in mind. Calf scrambles, Jesus-flavored syrup, (laughs) and echoes of Eden. Calf scrambles, Jesus-flavored syrup, and echoes of Eden. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, we pause for just a moment to acknowledge what can be possible right now. It is absolutely possible for one man to ramble on and on and for a host of people to endure and we go home unchanged. But it is magnificently possible that something else can transpire. That my words are not just my words, but but your spirit speaking through me that your spirit living within all of us may actually hear something today that shifts something in us and transforms something for us. So we pray now that you would bless the words that proceed from my mouth as we all interpret the sacred text so that in hearing, we may never be the same. Amen. Calf scrambles. The problem with the golden calf story is that it emerges out of a period of silence. He'd been gone for so long, they hadn't heard from him in so long, that in the midst of silence, panic tends to take over. Not just with them, but with with all of us. When, When we enter into seasons of silence with God... We assume the worst, and we can do crazy things. I mean, we go through a thing, and and so then we pray about it, and and we pray about it, and pray about it, and we expect some kind of response, but we hear nothing, and, and we feel nothing. So we assume the worst. What we assume in seasons of silence with God is that somehow God is mad or upset or is taking something out on us, or we assume that God may be absent or just worse than that, negligent, asleep on the job. And that's because we sometimes equate silence with absence when silence is not absence. Silence is silence. The truth is, when we enter seasons of silence, there is an amazing opportunity for something to emerge in us that cannot emerge in the clutter of all the noise that we're used to hearing. Sometimes the soul requires some silence. During silence, even silence from God, it can be a time in which we go through some cleansing, a kind of purging of the spirit, because there's there's a sense in which we become accustomed to God providing for us for a, a, a long stretch of our life, and here are the ways that God provides. Here's how God behaves. We got it. We got it under control. We figured him out. Sometimes it requires periods of silence to purge what we used to know about God so that we can turn in this new crisis 
and begin to possibly hear how he responds in the infinite number of ways we have yet to meet him. Out of silence, beauty can emerge. Out of silence, authenticity like it has never been can emerge. Or, or, we can simply allow the silence to fill us with panic and impulsivity takes over and we create little gods that make us feel better. Make for us some gods that will go before us because we've not heard from this Moses in a while. So Aaron does. Aaron does. Aaron, Aaron has them come and melt all their gold and they, they form these, these little, this little calf, which is interesting to me when you think about why he created a calf. Uh, there was a, uh, there's a person by the name of Jen Wilkin who says, you know, it's a little odd that in this opportunity to create a God, to make a little idol for themselves, it's odd that he would choose to make a calf rather than a bull. They had just come out of Egypt, right? Where in Egypt, one of the deities was a bull. They're on their way to Canaan eventually, where the deities there in some places are imaged as a bull, like the Baals. Why in the world would he not at least put the God of his own creation on some level of equality? With, and, and yet he makes a, a calf. Well, Jen says, well, maybe uh, it'd help us to think about why this is by thinking about rodeos. At a rodeo, most rodeos have, if anybody's from Texas, most rodeos, you, you may already know, have what's called a, a calf scramble. And that's where they get all the children to come into the middle of the rodeo, and all the kids come out, and on the count of three, they, they release the calves into the rodeo, and the kids go chasing after them. And they go chasing after them, and, ta and they tackle them, and, and they wrangle them down. They put a rope around their neck to put them in submission, and it's great fun. There's lots of laughter and energy, and, and it's, it's very competitive. But Jen points out what they don't do at rodeos is put all the kids in the middle of the, of the, the arena, the, the rodeo there, and on the count of three, release all the bulls. Wouldn't that be nuts? I mean, that would be just like a, a catastrophe. Not only is it just like comical to think how ridiculous that would be, the truth is that may have something to do with why they form a calf rather than a bull because when in the silence we become impulsive and fearful and when we decide it's time to create little gods of our own choosing, we try to create gods that are manageable. Right-sized. Gods that we are more likely able to tackle and, and control and manipulate, right? We don't prefer gods who do what they want to do. Have you ever tried to handle God? How'd that work out? Truth is, God won't be handled. God won't be corralled, wrangled, wrestled down. God won't be manipulated or controlled. And yet you, you, you and I, we do this. Now, we may not melt down our earrings and, and form little statues, and we sometimes scoff at the ancients for doing something so primitive, but the, the truth is 
You and I do take off the things that we are valuing most. You know, we, we do pour our treasure into lesser gods of our culture, hoping along the way to find some god, some thing, some person, some movement, some hobby, some activity, some job, some something that will simultaneously give us two things, a kind of strange deity cocktail that will give us both comfort and control. That's what the golden calf is doing or attempting to do. It gives us comfort because he'll go out before us, but it also gives us the illusion of control because at least it's not a bull. We can handle a calf. In what ways do you pour your treasure into some tiny God that does both for you, that gives you some illusion of control while at the same time strangely comforting you? Is it, is it a workout? Is it a hobby? Is it an addiction? Is it a person? Is it purchasing stuff? Is it, you know, what, what is it that gives you that illusion? Because if we can get underneath that, we begin to understand the power of this golden calf story, which leads us from, from um, calf uh, scrambling to the next movement of our sermon, Jesus-flavored syrup. So after he makes this, this golden calf and, and he, he recognizes that he's done what they wanted him to do, he does a strange thing, Aaron does. Aaron then declares a festival, not for the golden calf, but for Yahweh, what's he doing there? What in, what in the world is he up to there? The truth is they didn't, most believe, they didn't completely leave the worship of Yahweh altogether. The idea is they borrowed from pagan cultures around them and sprinkled in just enough Yahweh to justify what they were doing. It was, it was not really Yahwism. It wasn't really the worship of Yahweh. It was kind of like diet Yahweh. <laughs> It's kind of like, um, like Yahweh zero or, or, or Yahweh-ish. You know what ish is. You know the power of ish, right? The power of ish is you say something is ish when, you, when it's kind of sort of that something and not completely that something. Hey, are you hungry? Ish. I'm hungry-ish. I could eat. Is it hot outside? Well, it's, today's the first day of fall. It's kind of warm-ish. Ish. What time does church get out of Johns Creek Baptist Church? Noon-ish. Come on. So you tag ish at the end of the word when you want to say, let's soften the edges a little bit. And it works. But there are some places you don't want to ish something. See, ish can be squishy. There's a kind of squishy ishness that is not helpful. For example, you don't want the pilot of your airplane to be sober ish. <laughs> or awake-ish, right? If I go to a gathering, I don't want someone to come up to Laura, to my wife, and say, hey, are you married? And she says, ish. <laughs> right? I mean, there's something, uh, there's a squishy-ishness that is not good, and there's some places where ish, where, where being ish is not good, and that is absolutely in the heart of our faith with God. There is no room for squishy-ishness. And yet, this is what's happening. We're going to create our own idol, but we're going to sprinkle in just enough spirituality 
to make us feel better about the thing that we're mixing. And again, you and I, we scoff at the ancients because we're like, how could they do something so primitive? We would never do that. And yet every day, you and I will take from the culture around us a way of life that seems normal to the culture around us, and then we'll sprinkle in some spirituality, or I like to say we pour some Jesus-flavored syrup over those pancakes in order to consume it and, and allow it to go down easier and not really feel the guilt of the blurring of two things that should not be blurred. Can I just give you one or two examples about how we do that? The, the, the first that comes to my mind, not the ancients, but us, is consumerism. In fact, a kind of unbridled consumerism where our main drug of choice in our culture is consume, take, acquire, accumulate, build, just hold on, keep on hoarding, purchasing, buying, because it kind of insulates our pain in it. But we don't want to say it like that, so we sprinkle in a little bit. You know, I need this stuff here and this space there, and I need that other thing there because I'm, well, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have some people over. I'm going to talk about Jesus with them when they're in the space and... So we kind of pour some Jesus-flavored syrup over the thing that makes us forget we are the ones who follow the self-emptying one. The one who said, if you wish to be my followers, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, right? So in some ways, unbridled consumerism mixed with a little bit of spiritual salt, Jesus-flavored syrup, makes the pancake go down. Another example is not only unbridled consumerism, but unexamined nationalism. Now, you're never going to find somebody more patriotic than your pastor. I am moved to the point of emotion, emotionally moved by who we are as a nation, who we have been. We, we exist, and the ideals that cause our existence are unique in the history of humankind who we are and what we represent as a nation. And I'm stirred when I meet anyone who has given any portion of their life in service to a freedom that my sons enjoy. But there is a difference between patriotism and nationalism, and I need us to dial in on the difference here. Nationalism is elevating our devotion and love of nation above or even equal to our love and devotion to God. And the reason that's so important to keep an eye out for and to watch is because no nation is the kingdom of God. No nation is the kingdom of God. If there's anything I've said in nearly six years, that ought to get more amens than anything I've ever said. The kingdom of God is not bound by uh, the, the laws of, of this world. And you and I, as citizens of the kingdom of God, will at times, our kingdom of God ethic, will be in conflict with a particular ethic of a nation or a state or a region. That's why we must be careful not to pour Jesus-flavored syrup over all of it and just eat it all together because our love of God and our love of country, if not watched carefully, can blur into some kind of squishy-ishness. Another way that we at times will do the same thing that the ancients did with the idol and sprinkling in a little bit of Yahweh, is, is what I'm going to call unquestioned calendar cramming. Can I do this thing? Sure. Can I make this appointment? Yes. Uh, you want to go to this event? Sure. I have to have my kids in this particular program, and we're just on, on Sundays. We do our thing on Sundays, so I'm going to have to miss for a period of time. All right. 
but we pray while we're traveling. Or, or you know, we've got this place and we got to go to it, and because we got to go to it, we're just going to miss you know being here around. But you know what? Uh, I worship God in nature. <sighs> okay. Well, so who who doesn't? But you see, we can pour kind of a Jesus-flavored syrup over a stack of pancakes that makes us forget a little bit. Don't forget that the, the real truth-tellers of who our gods really are are our calendar and our checkbook. This is what caused Mark Steele to refer to a word I just love. I love this word and hate this word at the same time. He calls it Christian-ish. And in his book here, Christianish, the subtitle, zoom in there, Graham, says, uh, what if, what if we, I can't read that far away. <laughs> I, I really, literally can't read that far. It's like, what if, we, what if we're not really following Jesus at all? That's what it is, the subtitle. What if we're really not following Jesus at all, Christian-ish? And his whole point is what I'm talking about here, too, which is, look, we can throw all the kind of church things we want to throw, and we can be like Aaron and like, hey, let's, Let's throw Yahweh a bone. Let's have a festival tomorrow to make everybody feel better. Let's put some Jesus-flavored syrup all over this whole thing. We can do all the things that we do, but at the end of the day, if you are not devoted to the sovereign, exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian, you are Christian-ish. That means every day waking to ask oneself, am I devoted to anything, anyone, anywhere, more than I am devoted to the one who gave everything that I might be free. And you see, that's what we, Jesus said it, didn't he? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or later in Exodus, just two chapters later, Listen to how God is described. For you shall worship no other God because the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. His name is jealous. God will not compete or contend for any devotion or worship. He will not contend or compete with, your, with anything else for your affection or your attention. God desires all of us with, with no exceptions. No compromise, the unfettered love of God, which moves us to the next and last movement of our sermon. From cattle scrambles to Jesus-flavored syrup to echoes of Eden. So after this happens and, and Aaron makes this calf and then they declare a festival to the Lord then the scene changes and it moves back up the mountain and it's Moses, it's Moses and God. And there's a conversation that takes place and God says, you better get down there. That's a loose quote. It's kind of loses something in the translation. but You better get down there. And then he says, your people have gone cray cray. They have just lost their minds. But the key word is he says, your people, Moses. And Moses says, what do you mean my people? I was minding my own business, remember? And you said, hey, there's some slaves, and I want you to, these are your people. And God says, just leave me alone so my wrath can burn. Then I'm going to go wipe all of them out. And then Moses does something unprecedented. He begins to negotiate with God. And Moses says, is this how, 
Is this how covenant works? This is not how covenant works. Hold your wrath. And he says, relent. He uses the word shuv in Hebrew, which literally means to turn around. It's shuv that's translated through the Hebrew Bible into another word, repent. It means to change your mind about this thing. Moses calls God to change his mind about this thing. And in verse 14, it actually says, and God changed his mind about what he was going to do to those rascals. Again, loose translation. So Moses said, all right, I'm going down. You stay up here. You take a hot minute and just kind of, and I'm going to go and do the thing and talk to them. And we're going to, and Moses goes down. He sees what's happening and it fills him with rage and he throws the tablets down and they fragment all over the ground. Then he pulls Aaron aside and he says, he says to, to Aaron, you done messed up, eh, Aaron? <laughs> Loose translation again, just. But this is what he says. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you, you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. And this is where it becomes funny. He says, you know the people, but they are bent on evil. They said to me, make us gods who, who shall go before us. As, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, I just love this, uh, whoever has gold, uh, take it off. So they gave it to me and I, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. That's not a loose translation. That is a direct translation. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Is that not the most hilarious, is that not the most hideous, just, just verses earlier, the text says he hammered this thing out with his, with his own hands, he made the cast. Is that not, is it, is it not familiar too? Is it not painfully familiar too? Well, they gave me the gold, I threw it in and out came this calf, just, there it is. It sounds a little bit like the third chapter of Genesis where God comes to find our primordial parents and says to them what's that I smell on your breath what's in your mouth here spit it out no spit it out mm. did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat and Adam says is <laughs> The woman did. He says to the woman, did you eat where I told you not to eat? And the woman says, mm. it's just, the serpent did. Serpent made me do it. And the serpent says, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is it not familiar though? Because here's the theme that gets repeated again and again through your whole Bible. God is always creating. Always creating. Out of the primordial chaos, the watery chaos, he creates the universe. And one of the first things that we do is rebel against God's creative energies and beauty and grace. And here, we've already said that as he liberates the people from Egypt, it wasn't just that he was setting people free, but in the chaos of Egypt, he is establishing a new creation in these people. And here he is in the midst of creating people, and the first thing they do is cross the boundary and eat from the wrong tree and worship the wrong God. And that's what we do. 
And I, I, my point today is this. The, the echoes of Eden are in you too and in me. There is an Edenic echo always, a kind of energy, a force that is always in us because God is always up to something in us attempting to create and make new something that needs to be made new. And yet there is also an equally kind of counter energy happening in us, which is not only is God trying to do something good, but we are at the same time trying to resist it all the time. I don't, we sang in, to my friends in the FLC and online, in the sanctuary today we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There is a line in this, this hymn that is just, that says it, that says it for me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I just, I f- prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord, take and, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts. Above, See, this Edenic urge is in all of us, all the time. But there's something else in us as well. The Eden story did not end with complete failure. It ended with God's grace. It ended with expulsion from Eden, but on the other side of Eden, God is sewing together animal skins and clothing them and providing for him because his mercy endureth forever. Even after the flood, remember the flood? And, and the, the, the world that God had created was now uncreated. He rescues a family and provides the opportunity to start all over again. And here, with the exodus, even though the very first act of the covenant people was to break covenant, he later relents and establishes the people and remains faithful to them. And I'm just telling you that the same is available to you. I know you, you go through a thing from time to time and the darkness gets very dark and the, and the silence gets so silent that it's painful to hear, right? And when you go through that and, and when life happens and it causes so much woundedness or anger that it, it makes it hard for you to even believe anymore, I just want you to know it's okay because when you can't believe in God, God still believes in you. Even when you don't believe in God, God believes in you. Amen. Let's pray together. God, it is because you believe and have shown yourself to believe again and again and again in what is possible in us. And because you believed so deeply that you did not spare even your only son to ensure that your mercy would endure forever. Then we humbly come before you today and we acknowledge somebody on this campus, somebody tuning in, Lord, right now, we, we acknowledge that some of us have been cattle scrambling all our lives. We've been attempting to downsize you And to the point that we can handle you and manage you and control you, but we know you cannot be controlled or manipulated. And we confess to you that we are guilty at times of pouring Jesus-flavored syrup over a stack of pancakes that we, we we know it doesn't belong and we recognize that it can't compare to you. So forgive us when we attempt to justify the unjustifiable. And Lord, 
If it is true that there is an echo from Eden, if it is true that you're always trying to create in us and we're always trying to resist it, then show us this day how to stop, how to relinquish, how to yield our lives so you can do something in us that you've been wanting to do from the foundation of the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord.